So we want to pick up with um, our discussion of David's Jerusalem. We're almost at the end. And one of the things I want to point out um, is this final passage that we're going to look at, 2 Samuel 7. In this passage, we actually get, I would argue, the most important verse in the Hebrew Bible, especially for Christians uh, who come along and, and write the New Testament and see Jesus, this guy from Nazareth, as the Messiah. Okay? So 2 Samuel 7, the, the promise to David is what, is what it's called, um, is perhaps the most important verse, I, I would argue, uh, in the Hebrew Bible, as far as messianism is concerned, the, the concept of an eschatological uh, um, uh, Messiah that comes out of the sky. And so we want to look at that. By the way, um, perhaps the world's foremost expert on 2 Samuel 7 was my advisor, Bill Schneiderwin, is my advisor, he's still alive. Um, and he created this course, by the way. Several of us have taught it, but this was actually his conception. He was the first one to teach this. And so uh, we always make sure to, to point out 2 Samuel 7 in, in the course. But for those of you who haven't yet read it, 2 Samuel 7 um, is this promise to David. And as I will show you, it becomes the most important verse for Messianism, uh, especially Christianity, um, Christians as a sect of Judaism uh, much later. And we'll, let's just read it very quickly. Now, when the king was settled in his house, remember, he, he built a, a palace for himself first, but didn't build the temple. The Lord had given him rest from all his enemies all around. The king said to the prophet Nathan, See now, uh, I am living in a house of cedar, but the ark of God is still in a tent. Remember, they just kind of rebuilt a tent like they had the tabernacle. So the ark of the covenant is still in a tent. Nathan said to the king, Go do all that you have in mind for the Lord is with you. So basically, whatever you're going to do, go ahead and do it. And Nathan is the court prophet to David. Uh, there are some prophets in the Bible who work for the king and a lot of other prophets in the Bible whose job it is to take on the king. So the idea in prophecy is not predicting the future. That's something that gets attributed to them, especially 100 years later, and you look back and you go, oh, that guy was right. He was a prophet, right? But the, excuse me, the idea of a prophet in ancient times was to be a countermeasure to the king. So when King David wanted to do something, he would consult his court prophet. King David's court prophet is Nathan. Okay. But other times, especially as, as after David's gone and other kings take control and weren't thought of as very good kings, other prophets arose to kind of hold the king in check. The, the role of the prophet in today's society, you could say, was played by Martin Luther King or played by Gandhi or played by uh, you know, who, whomever it might be. But the, the idea is, you know, I'd say one of the closest uh, similarities today is the press. The president uh, in, a, in, a in a dictatorship or the, the premier or whatever can just do whatever he wants and he silences the press. He doesn't want any criticism, any opposition whatsoever. Okay? But in, in this country, in the United States, we have this pesky freedom of press, right? And the press, us, we scholars, citizens, uh, have, the, have the right, and I encourage you to do this, to challenge what is said from those in, in, in authority. We elected them, right? So we should be able to say, uh, you can't do that or we don't want you to do that. And that role in a monarchy was played by the prophets in ancient Israel. So time and again, you'll see the prophets who are railing against the king, railing against the monarchy, uh, because that's kind of the countermeasure in ancient Israel. There's the king who's being a good dictator, or hopefully being a good dictator, and there's the prophet who's outside of the court of the king uh, to kind of hold him in check. Nathan, however, is a court prophet. He works for David, but kind of serves in a similar uh, capacity. 
So David says, you know what? I think I'm going to build a temple for the Lord. And Nathan says, go and do it. The Lord's with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord. Right? Um, are you the one to build me a house to live in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I've been moving around in a tent, etc., etc., etc. Did I ever speak a word with any of the tribal leaders of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people? Israel saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took from you from the pasture, from following the sheep, the prince over my people, in accordance with all these words. So basically God comes to Nathan and says, No, 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 I changed my mind. Uh, he is not to build me a temple, not to build me a house. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies. I did all, I did all these great things for you. So God says to David, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel and plant them. Remember we talked earlier about how divine, the divine houses, temples, if you will, usually come from above. They come from, they're, they're, they're said to be from God. The idea, the plans, all of that, right? So God says, I will appoint a place so that they may live, disturb no more, and evildoers shall afflict them no more, and, as formerly. And from the time I appointed judges over me, I will give you rest, etc., etc., etc. Moreover, the Lord says, here's the, here's the important part, right? The Lord will make you a house. Okay? When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your ancestors, I will raise you up, up your offspring after you, who will come forth from your body, basically your children. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build me a house, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And then it goes on and on and on. Your house and your kingdom will be made sure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Get this? This is why this is so important. God's essentially promising, according to the text, God is promising David, no, you're not going to build me a house. doesn't really give a reason. The reason that's given here is, um, look, I never asked you to build me a house. Why are you going to build me a house? But he does a play on words in the Hebrew. I will build you a house. And we already talked about from the Tel Dan inscription, the word house, bite, means what? Not just a, a house, but also a dynasty. And then he goes on to talk about this dynasty. I will produce one of your heirs, and he will build me a house. Moreover, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. This is a, a, an eternal promise to David that the Davidic line the Davidic monarchy will never pass away. And it's all based upon this notion that David wants to build God a house, God's going to turn around and build him a house, that is a dynasty. And he makes this promise that there will be a ruler on the throne of David forever. Now, those of you who've read ahead, what's the problem with this promise? Remember, this is the word of God, right? God speaking and he's saying, I promise you, David, there will always be a king on the throne, your throne, and, and the house in Jerusalem will be made sure forever. What's wrong with this promise? Yeah? Yeah, what specifically happens in 586 BCE? The Babylonians come in and knock down the temple and then exile the kings and then the Davidic line eventually disappears. The high priest remains intact, but the king is gone. So if you're a good Israelite or a good Jew, and, and there's, a, there's a debate over when, when do we start calling uh, the people that we read about in the Hebrew Bible Jews. 
do we refer to them as Israelites? And then once they split up, it's Israel and, and Judah. And then once they come back, is it once they come back from Persia? We'll get to that part. Do we start calling them Jews? Maybe, maybe not. But there's just a debate about that. But the idea being, what, if you do, what do you do if you're in the third century BCE, let's say, and you're a Jew, and you read this passage? What do you do? What do you do when the promise that's, that's been made by God, and you believe the Bible and everything the Bible says, and you, you, you believe the ancient prophecy, you believe God's promises will always come true. What do you do when you're standing there, and the temple's gone, which God said would last forever, and the Davidic monarchy, the king, is gone? What do you do? What's that? Yeah, so one thing to do is just abandon your faith. Obviously, that wasn't a very good religion. If God makes a promise, and that promise is destroyed or broken, then he must not be God. And that's what a lot of people did. That's what a lot of people do today when they reach a time of, if they have a belief and then they, or an ideology or a philosophy and it doesn't pan out, then they just abandon it. That's one option. What we'll find, and why this verse is so important, that happens in ancient Israel is this promise to David in 2 Samuel 7 gets reinterpreted. Because of the belief that, well, we're Jews and God can't break his promise. So he must have meant something else. So there must be some kind of plan. So there must be either a, a Davidic king still around somewhere that we can't see, or there is going to be a Davidic king that's going to come back. And then the question is, who is that new Davidic king? Right? Is it the line of David that continued and kind of, kind of petered out there? Is it the Persian appointees when they sent the Jews back out of Persia? We'll get to that. When they sent them back... Um, they, they put you know, governors over Judah? Is, are that, is that the new Davidic line? Or do the people, do the Israelites, do the Jews begin to expect an apocalyptic style Messiah, if you will, son of David? And of course, if you've read ahead or if you've read your New Testament, <clears throat> you will see that repeatedly in the New Testament, this man named Jesus from Nazareth is called the what? Son of David. He's called the son of David. Why? You ever wonder why Jesus is called son of David? Why it was so important to tie in the bibliography, uh, pardon me, in the genealogies um, of Jesus? Why it was so important to tie him back to David? It's this promise, 2 Samuel 7. And Jesus wasn't the only one. There were lots and lots of people claiming to be Messiah or, or people who they thought were Messiah. Lots of people. And one of the, one of the um, qualifications was you had to be a son of David, at least to some. There were some Messiahs that didn't try to be son of David. But it was important in the New Testament to tie Jesus to David, calling him the son of David, because of this promise. So one of the, one of the options, that, instead of abandoning your faith, is try to reinterpret the promise. And so Professor Schneiderwin, who established this class, wrote a book called Society and the Promise to David. And what it goes through is all of the different attempts to reinterpret this promise down through the New Testament and beyond. So this is why it's the most important passage, I would argue, for Messianism in the Hebrew Bible is it's on this promise that this apocalyptic messianism that we find in the New Testament is based. And it's on this promise likewise that we get this notion that David's going to have this house that we saw kind of, for instance, in the Tildan inscription, right, the Beit David, the, the house of David, but also that we have the promise of a temple to come. Okay? Um, I want to point out two quick passages, 1 Chronicles 21, 28 through 22.10. So it's, it jumps a chapter there. 
And basically you get David saying, um, uh, then David said, here shall be the house of the Lord, God and the altar of burnt offering for Israel. So basically he finds a place and he says, here's where I want to build it. And he starts summoning, uh, gather all the aliens who were residing in the land of Israel, set the stone cutters, prepare the dress nails, get all the stuff ready to go, make preparation for it. But then in 22.6, he calls for a son, Solomon, right? David and Bathsheba had a son, he dies, had another son, Solomon. Solomon takes over for David. My son, I had planned. This is, remember, 1 Chronicles rewrites Samuel and Kings, but cleans it up a little bit. And here they offer a different explanation. Remember, the explanation back in 2 Samuel was, God didn't want David to build a house because God's never lived in a house. He's always been in a tent. He was fine. He's God, right? I'm cool with a tent. That's fine. But once you get to 1 Chronicles, the reason changes, right? But the word of the Lord came to me saying, you have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house for my name because you have shed much blood in my sight on earth. So basically in First Chronicles, you get this different reason for why David couldn't build a house, and it's because he killed a lot of people. And you can't, you know, if you kill a lot of people, you can't turn around and build a holy place. So that's the rationale given in First Chronicles. So if you're writing a paper on, you know, Solomon's temple, why Solomon built it and not David, 2 Samuel 7 and 1 Chronicles 21 and 22 are key passages for you. Okay? And this is where we get this tradition that Solomon built the temple. Again, there's no evidence. We have no evidence of that early temple, uh, that, that first temple, and I'll, and I'll explain why later. But this is the literary evidence here. <clears throat> so, in review, the point, how did Jerusalem get to be so sacred? And why is it so affiliated with David, the city of David? God chose Jerusalem. Remember, it's important for the deity, for God or gods in, in ancient traditions, to be the ones to assign the place, right? Not humans, because then we'll argue about it. So Deuteronomy 12, 2 Samuel 24, talks about how God is the one who chose Jerusalem specifically. We have the tradition of the Ark of the Covenant. Remember, the Ark was the presence of God, and they built the place, and they put the Ark in it, and then the temple assumes all of the veneration, all of the power that used to reside in the Ark. Now, it, now it's the temple. And as I said, you rarely hear about the ark after that ever again. We'll talk about the ark when we get to Hezekiah and Josiah. We have the, then we have Jerusalem, after this ball gets rolling, starts sucking in all these stories, right? So the creation and the Sabbath stories in Genesis 1 and 2 uh, begin to be uh, attributed to Jerusalem. Remember with Eden, the Garden of Eden, and Adam's head. Um, Jerusalem and Mount Moriah. Remember the Genesis 22 story? In 2 Chronicles 3, we looked at that. In Genesis 22, we have this tradition of um, uh, the Akedah, right, of, of, of Abraham going out to sacrifice Isaac, and it says it was in what? The land of Moriah. And later on, we get this clarification in 2 Chronicles, which cleans up the story and says, by the way, Moriah is Jerusalem. So by the time we get to the writing of Chronicles, Jerusalem has already, already absorbed this, this uh, the sacrifice of Isaac uh, story. And then, of course, we have the Melchizedek story. By the way, these are great things to ask you on why Jerusalem is so sacred on a midterm, right? Um, just, everybody starts writing down. Um, Melchizedek in Salem, remember that? We have it in Genesis 14, but also in Psalm 110, right? That this guy who's the both priest and king of Salem comes out to bless Abraham. That Salem comes to be associated with Jerusalem, 
right? So we get those two stories. The whole point, you got this? Yes? Oh, the photo, you can't really see it. It's that scene from Indiana Jones. Pardon me, I, I have to do it. It's that scene from Indiana Jones where they're discussing the Ark of the Covenant, basically why it's important. Wait, look, we, we don't have the Ark. We don't know where it is. It's gone. We don't have the first temple, so what am I going to put there for a picture? Indy, right? Indy. <coughs> Who, by the way, recently made a list of the, the worst the top eight archaeologists who suck at their jobs. Laura Croft was on the list, and the guy from Stargate was on the list, and, and anyways, I was sad to see Indy was on there, but anyways. Um, so these are, the, these are the things that kind of get that ball rolling. The whole point is to do this, is to build that tradition. Early on, certain stories that we have early in the Hebrew Bible came to be associated with Jerusalem. So that by the time we get a full-blown monarchy in Jerusalem, right, we have actual kings and scribes and doing all these things that David, according to the Bible, was said to have started, and then Solomon. As this, as this burgeons into a full-blown state, we already have a bunch of traditions that kind of show why Jerusalem is so important. I mentioned Psalm 110. Once you've established a place and once you've got these traditions, now you've got to build that tradition. So one of the things you can do is sing a song, right? So something historic happens, like the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, and then Gordon Lightfoot comes along and writes one of the greatest songs of all time, right? Lady Gaga comes along and writes some song that, you know, is meaningful. I say that jokingly, you can't. What I'm saying is, when something happens, people come along and write songs about it, and that builds the tradition, right? That's how it works. So they came along, same thing with Jerusalem, and wrote Psalms, like Psalm 110. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord sends out from Zion. Okay? This is an interesting psalm. It's a very a messianic psalm, pardon me. It opens up the Lord, and it's in caps, so we know that it has the, Hebrew, the name of the Hebrew God there. Says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. The Lord, God, says to my Lord, and the question is, who is this my Lord? Come sit at my right hand. Now, <clears throat> I would argue that early on, this is how you refer to the king, right? M my Lord. Y you know, my Lord, but also my Lord. In fact, the, I, I love the fact that, I don't love it, my wife despises this. In Hebrew, the word for husband is Baal. Remember the god Baal? And it's also the word for Lord or Master. To, to this day in Hebrew, the word for husband is Baal, Lord, my Lord. And if you watch uh, Pride and Prejudice, which I just got through watching, um, you, you always, I do this, right? First, it, what, was, what was the other one I watched? Letters to Juliet, now Pride and Prejudice. I love you, honey. <laughs> <clears throat> which I enjoyed quite, uh, they would always walk around and they'd curtsy and they'd say, what? My Lord. It's, it's not some ancient thing. We've done this to, to very modern times, right? So that's what you do. What you probably got is a psalm that says, God said to David, said to the king, my lord, da-da-da-da-da. The problem is, is that over time, David became the one traditionally uh, affiliated with writing a lot of these psalms. Right? David was the psalm writer. What does it mean that a psalm is of David? Does that mean it's written for him or about him? Or does that mean he wrote it? It's from David. I would, I, would, I would demonstrate, and I would have verses to back it up, uh, namely um, the stories that we get in Matthew, uh, pardon me, Mark chapter 12, uh, verse 36, Matthew 22, 44, Luke 20, 42. 
this has Jesus asking a question to the Pharisees. Right? Who's the Messiah? Who do you think the Messiah is? And Jesus, according to the text, uh, reads this differently. Right? The, basically, he's, he's trying to do something to this text that's different, but it's based upon the fact that the tradition was David wrote the psalm, so this my Lord couldn't be referring to the King David. It had to be referring to someone else because if the Messiah comes from David, which is what the promise said, right? There will be a son coming from David who will reign forever, which Christians ascribe to Jesus, right? Then how can, how can he be saying to my Lord if, if he's not born yet type thing? It's a, it's a big confusing thing. And if you're writing your paper on Psalm 110, make sure you get those verses. Mark 12, 36, Matthew 22, 44, and Luke 20, 42. It's the same story in three different gospels but it's trying to figure out what's going on in this psalm. Why is it important to us? It shows that this Melchizedek story, you're a priest after the order of Melchizedek, is tied to Zion. It's bringing together Jerusalem and Zion. The same thing is going on in Psalm 76. His abode has been established not in Jerusalem, but in Salem, his dwelling place, Zion. Again, another psalm, if you're writing on the Melchizedek story in, in Genesis 14, here you have another psalm that's equating Jerusalem or Salem with Jerusalem. Okay? Any questions about the role of David, 2 Samuel 7? All right. 